John 2, and for our opening passage, we're going to read verse 9 down through verse number 11. Let's stand, if we can, for the reading of God's Word, John 2, 9 through 11, and then we'll be looking at verse 1 through 11 this evening by way of uh, Bible study and sermon. The Bible says, When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse... uh, Let me back up here. Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou, thou hast kept... Uh, the good wine until now. Verse 11, This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth His glory and His disciples believed on Him. The title of my sermon this evening is this, The Best is Yet to Come. The Best is Yet to Come. Let's pray. Lord, help us tonight as we look at this, uh, j- this fascinating story of Jesus' first miracle. Help us to remember that heaven awaits us. And uh, for those of us that are saved, the best is yet to come. And Lord, may we live our life loyal to you and loving you, and Lord, depending on you to supply the thirst of our soul. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. There's a story about an old saintly woman who requested to meet with the pastor at her home. And so uh, the pastor came in and was seated at the uh, table there and enjoyed a cup of coffee and a time of fellowship with this saintly sister in Christ. And after they had fellowshiped for a little bit, she handed over a folder full of instructions. And in it were her wishes for her funeral and her burial. All the songs she wanted sung and all of the, um, uh, just uh, all the scripture verses she wanted covered and sort of who she wanted to speak at her funeral and all of the arrangements and you know, and, and, and that sort of thing. And so the pastor's thumbing through the notes and making sure he understands exactly uh, what's there and there's no, um, uh, no confusion on any of it. And then he came to one detail that he found to be quite peculiar. She had requested that uh, have an open casket funeral and uh, in that casket uh, she wanted a spoon to be placed in her right hand. She wanted a spoon in her right hand. And then she wanted to be buried with that spoon in her right hand. So the pastor read that and and was puzzled. And he inquired as to the reason for the spoon. So she told the pastor that when she was a little girl, that they were very poor. And in her home, they did not have dessert very often. And she said, um, we never knew when we were going to have dessert. Sometimes it was once a week. Other times it was once a month. Uh, Sometimes it would even be a a longer gap of time than that. But the way we would find out we were having dessert is when mom came around to clean up the table, she'd say, hold on to your spoon. The best is yet to come. And that was how they knew that they were going to be having dessert that night. Hold on to your spoon, mom would say. The best is yet to come. She said, when people come by my casket and they see me with that spoon in their hand, I don't want them to weep over me. I want them to rejoice because for them, the best is yet to come. 
Here in John chapter 2, the governor of the wedding feast tasted the water that Jesus had turned into wine, and he declared, you have saved the best wine for last. You've saved the best for last. You see, Satan offers his best thrills up front, and then once he has you hooked, he then gives you nothing more than pain and suffering and emptiness. But Jesus, Jesus saves the best for last. Now tonight, if you're saved and you're serving, then it just keeps getting sweeter, doesn't it? Just keeps getting sweeter. Uh, The longer I serve Him, the old song says, what? The sweeter He grows. And so, uh, the longer you serve the Lord, the best, it just keeps getting better. If, if you are, um, if you are not serving the Lord, then you're running into the world for sin. Oh, it is fun for a season, but then comes the aftertaste and the pain and destruction. I'm here to tell you tonight, if you're serving Jesus, that the best is still yet to come. Let's look at uh, three truths out of John chapter 2. This evening, alright, ready, here we go. Number one, notice Jesus the socialite. Jesus the socialite. Look at John chapter 2 and look with me at verse number 1. It says, And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. So here's a wedding, and in Jewish tradition back in this time, a wedding feast, a wedding celebration would have lasted seven days, seven whole days of celebrating the marriage of a couple. Notice letter A, speaking of Jesus, notice his impulse to fellowship. His impulse to fellowship. When it comes to socializing, Jesus was in, 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 in stark contrast to John the Baptist. Jesus was at one to get in out there and put himself out there and socialize and go to banquets and, uh, and, and go to social gatherings and, and be amongst the crowds and interact and, and speak with people. Uh, turn over to Matthew chapter 11. John the Baptist was not someone who socialized. In fact, John the Baptist was one who'd come out, preach, and then uh, go back into his shell He was more of a recluse type. Matthew chapter 11, we see the stark contrast between the social life of Jesus versus the social life of his cousin, John the Baptist. Look at verse 16, But whereunto shall I liken this generation? It is like unto children sitting in the market and calling unto their fellows and saying, We have piped unto you, and ye have not danced. We have mourned unto you, and ye have not lamented. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, He hath the devil. So John did not attend uh, feasts and marriages and social gatherings. Look at 19. The Son of Man cometh eating and drinking. And they say, Behold, a man of gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of her children. Turn back a a page to Matthew chapter 9. Jesus' disciple, or rather John's disciples, questioned Jesus on why they fasted. And his disciples did not fast. And why they uh, uh, abstained from parties. And Jesus was at the parties. And Jesus was uh, uh, communing and socializing. Matthew 9, look at verse 14. Then came to him the disciples of John, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast off, but thy disciples fast not? Verse 15, And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the day will come, and the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and they, and then shall they fast. 
You can take your Bible over to Luke 15 if you don't mind. Jesus was so social that even the Pharisees weaponized this against Jesus in their drummed up accusations against Him. And they, they would uh, point at Jesus' social life as going to uh, weddings and banquets and feasts and gatherings. In fact, He even went to some within the homes of the Pharisees and uh, they would use this as a way to criticize Him and put Him down. Look at Luke 15. Look at verse number 1. Then drew near unto Him all the publicans and sinners for to hear Him. And the uh, Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. So, uh, listen, uh, Jesus was one to put himself out there. Jesus went to weddings. He went to celebrations. Uh, he went to feasts. He went to banquets. He used parables about people having banquets and attending banquets. Uh, Jesus was a social person. And, and listen, the reality is God made everyone to be social. He made everyone to be social, including the people who are sitting by themselves watching me on YouTube right now. God made you to be social too. Amen? Uh, everyone. Now, some uh, thrive in a large crowd, right? They feel the energy of a large crowd. Uh, I, I love going to sporting events. I'm a big uh, baseball fan, and I cheer for the Baltimore Orioles, and we're hoping they're going to be good this year, all right? And so uh, I enjoy going to a baseball game. And i got to tell you, when I go to a baseball game and there's like, you know, uh, one person for every like 20 seats in the stadium, it's not a lot of fun to watch a baseball game. But when you have 40,000 fans packed into 40,000 seats and they're all cheering and, and, and into the game and excited, boy, that energizes me. That gets me fired up. That gets me Pumped up. To give you a more spiritual example, when I when we had an 8.30 service, and this is part of the reason why we're doing the 8.30 service upstairs, but when we had an 8.30 service before, I'd come in here and there'd be 50 people spread out all across the room, and I'd try to get the energy in the room, and I could not get any energy. Well, I could, you know, I'd jump up and down and, and uh, run around the ride, wouldn't do all that, but you get, you get the point. And, uh, but then uh, I come in here right now at 1030 when you got almost every seat full and listen, I leave here energized and excited. Some people find a great energy from a large crowd and they socialize well in a large crowd. Others would rather a small group or others would even prefer one on one. All right. But listen, here's the point. Everyone is social. Everyone is social. God made you to socialize with others and don't be a person who just says, I'm going to come to church, I'm going to get the Word of God, and I'm going to go home and I don't need any friends. Listen, everybody needs a friend. Everybody needs a social activity. And so put yourself out there. So we see Jesus, the socialite. We see His impulse to fellowship, letter B. Notice His invitation to the marriage. His invitation to the marriage. Go back to John 2. With me. And look at verse number 1. The Bible says, In the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And so Jesus was not famous at this time. In fact, Jesus had not even fully launched his earthly ministry. He was in the middle of launching his earthly ministry. Uh, he's going to perform his first miracle, and it's going to be very 
under the radar. It's not going to be as sensational. Everyone knows, the handful of servants know, and his mother and disciples know outside of that. Not even everyone at the wedding is aware of his miracle. Uh, he had not yet taught the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, there's, no, uh, uh, there's no great hype around Jesus, and he gets invited to be at this marriage. And I would just say tonight, by a point of application, if uh, you're going to get married, make sure you invite Jesus to your wedding. Amen? Make sure Jesus is involved in that marriage. Ecclesiastes 4, Pastor King used this passage at our uh, marriage conference uh, last Friday and Saturday, or Friday and Saturday a week ago. Let me, and again, this is not the interpretation of the passage, but let me make an application here. Verse 9, Ecclesiastes 4 says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Again, if we if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. It is a great idea uh, to those of you here that have any relationship, whether it's marriage or friendship, maybe it's a, a, a child, a parent relationship, it is always a good idea to intermingle Jesus into every single relationship you have. Amen. Make sure He's invited. If, if you are friends with someone who does not want to talk about Jesus and want to love Jesus, then that is not a relationship that's going to pan out well. You make sure you insert Jesus in the middle of things. And we see that Jesus was invited to the marriage. Jesus wants to be invited into your home. He wants to feel He's welcomed in your relationships. Jesus, the socialite. Number two, Jesus, the son of Mary. Jesus, the son of Mary. Look at John chapter 2 and look at verse number Three with me. The Bible says, And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto his servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Letter A, we see his mother's connotation. So his mom, notice his mom does not come out and tell him to do anything. She's not saying to him, Jesus, you need to create wine out of thin air. You don't, she didn't say you need to turn water into wine. She just says, hey, there's a problem. It would be great if you could step up and help out with that. And uh, Jesus says to her, woman, what have I to do with thee? Now, um, while it may come across as rude for, her to address, for him to address her as woman, um, understand that what we lack is cultural context. Let me show you what I mean. Turn over to John chapter 19. John 19. Um, by the way, Jesus addressed his mother the same way in Luke 2 when she said, you know, where were you? And he said, woman, don't you know that I must be about my father's business? Again, that comes across as demeaning and degrading. But in that cultural context, this was the way that a man would refer to, an adult boy would refer to his mother. In John 19, we see him use that same word, woman, but yet it's far less uh, offensive sounding. Look at 26, he's on the cross here. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, look here, woman, behold thy son. And you know what he's doing here? He's telling John, John, take care of my mother. And he's saying to his mother, this, 
this uh, John is going to take care of. You turn over to chapter 20 and verse 13. Here he's addressing Mary. He says, and they, and, and they uh, say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid. So, again, woman, and this is not in any way de- de- derogatory or demeaning. So when Jesus says to her, Woman, what, do, what am I going to do with you? My hour's not yet come. This is not some disrespectful uh, uh, slant, disrespectful take at his mom. No, uh, this, is, this is Jesus being um, uh, just direct with his mother. So Mary did not tell Jesus to turn water into wine, but did encourage him to step up and do something about the problem. So why? Now listen, from what I have read in preparation of this message, to run out of food or wine at a wedding in biblical times, you could have been hit with a fine. You could have been fined for this. So there is that part of it, and then there's just the social embarrassment of running out. Now, I'm reading between the lines here, admittedly, but... um, Jesus had just recruited a handful of days earlier five disciples. So you get Jesus and five disciples showing up. Is it possible that these six men were responsible for helping the wine to run out? Maybe they made the guest list late. Again, not in Scripture. I'm reading between the lines. All the same, they run out. And uh, this is a problem. This is a social embarrassment for the bride and groom. I imagine Mary. She's back in the kitchen. And she's working to get the food out and, and the wine out. And, and they're running out. And, and there's uh, all sorts of panic among the hosts of the feast. What are we going to do? We're down to the last couple of pitchers. We're running out. We're at the end. We're not going to make it to seven days. There was no natural solution to save face. But Mary, she knew something. She knew her son was God. And while that had not yet been revealed to everyone else, Mary knew that her boy was God. Mary, did you know? Yes, Mary knew her son was God. And uh, she uh, knew he was capable of doing the supernatural. There was no natural answer to the problem, but there was a supernatural answer. And while Mary did not know how Jesus would do it, she knew that he could step up and do it. Let me just say tonight, you don't need to know how God can solve your problems. You just need to know that you have a God that can solve your problems. And you need to trust Him and believe in Him that when you're about to face social embarrassment or you're about to fall flat on your face and you're about to run into problems, you have a God that can step up and help you. Boy, sometimes it's just a matter of us reaching down and praying. So she stepped up and she challenged him to be part of the solution without directly telling him what to do. And I have to say, Mary did a great job of walking the line between being mom and being the creation of her son. Uh, his mother's connotation, let her be noticed, his main concern. His main concern. Now, this is a neat little Bible fact. If you've never seen before, you're, you're really going to enjoy this little Bible, mini Bible study here. Um, uh, look down with me at John chapter 2, verse 4, and we see his response. He, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Notice this phrase, Mine hour is not yet come. Yes. 
So here, John is introducing for us a new concept in his book. He's introducing uh, for us God the Father's timetable for His only begotten here on earth. Let me show you how this plays out. All right, turn to John chapter 7 and verse number 30. So Jesus said to her, Mine hour has not yet come, meaning I don't have permission from the Father uh, to start this type of work. Look at John 7, verse 30. The Bible says, Then they sought to take Him, but no man laid hands on Him. Look here. Because His hour was not yet come. His hour was not yet come, meaning it was not His time to die. Look at John chapter 8, and look at verse number 20. These words spake Jesus in the treasury as He taught in the temple, and no man laid hands on Him, for His hour was not yet come. So again, John is referencing God the Father's timetable for Jesus. They could not arrest Him yet. The hour had not yet come. Turn over to chapter 12 and verse 23. The Bible says, And Jesus answered them, saying, Look here, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Jesus is getting ready to get transfigured. So, again, we see God the Father had a timetable for Jesus on earth that He very closely wanted followed. Turn over to chapter 19, or uh, I'm sorry, turn over to chapter 13 and verse 1. 13 and verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour was come, that He should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved His own which were in the world, He loved them unto the end. Turn over to chapter 17. We find Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, uh, getting ready to pray in intercessory prayer. Some people talk about um, the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, In my opinion, this is the Lord's Prayer. John 17 is uh, the Lord's Prayer. If you want a prayer uh, of intercession, look at, you want to learn about how to pray an intercessory prayer, look at John 17. Look at verse 1. These words spake Jesus and lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify Thy Son, that Thy Son also may glorify Thee. So when Jesus told Mary back in John 2, His hour had not yet come, He was telling her that He, watch this now, was to submit to His Father's timetable for His life. Do you know that likewise, God has a timetable for your life? You know, the best thing for you to do is learn to wait on God's timing. Oh, that's so important. You need to wait on God's timing. You know what? When I was 16, I wanted to be married. But it was not time to be married. I had to wait until I was old enough and mature enough to be able to financially afford a wife. And so at the age of ripe old age of 23 years old, I married Angela. And so the hour had come. And then when I turned 23, I want to tell you, I wanted to pastor church. I wanted to be a senior pastor. But my hour had not yet come. I wanted to be an assistant pastor at the least. But my hour had not yet come. My hour was to be a Christian school teacher and a basketball coach. And I did that for two years. And then God opened the door for me to be an assistant pastor. My hour had come. 
And then at age uh, 29, I thought, well, this is it. My hour has come. I'm going to go be a pastor. And I got voted down at the Grace Baptist Church in Lockport, Illinois. Can you believe they voted me down? Can you believe that? You say, was your ego hurt? Yes, my ego was hurt. Of course my ego was hurt. Uh, my hour had not yet come. And I thought it was my hour to pastor. It was not my hour to pastor. And so uh, we instead, we, we, we were removed from church ministry for a season. And then at the age 32, why don't that church voted me in? And my hour to pastor had come. There's going to be a day where it is no longer my hour to pastor. And uh, we move on to another phase of life. Do you know that just as God has a unique timetable for me, God has a unique timetable for your life. And you must be content with where you are right now, and you must be patient on God's time. You must trust Him. Where you're working right now is very well may be where God wants you to be. And uh, what you're doing in life right now very well may be that timetable. Jesus said, I am, and here's the point, I am to submit to the Father's timetable. Are you even aware that God has a timetable for your life? Are you aware of that? Are you leaning on that? Are you trusting that? We see His main concern. What was His main concern? To be subservient and submissive to God the Father and His timetable. Clearly the Father gave Him the go-ahead for the clock to begin because as we will see, Jesus is getting ready to perform His first miracle. Some of you came to church tonight thinking I was going to tell you whether or not that He turned the water into alcohol. And I'm not even going to touch on that tonight, alright? Number three, notice Jesus' silent sermon. Jesus' silent sermon. Look at John chapter 2 and verse number 6. The Bible says, And there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and then, uh, when, when, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory. And disciples believed on him. Um, this is quite a miracle. Yes. So they're coming down to the very end of the wine. They would serve at this wedding and they're in panic mode. And Mary comes to Jesus and says, we're running out of wine. And I can see Jesus looking at her like, and what do you expect me to do about it? And she said, whatever he tells you to do, you just do it. And so after getting permission from heaven, uh, Jesus says to these men, you see those six water pots? Go fill them up with water. And so they bring them back and he says, dip into the water and take it to the governor of the feast and give it to him. And they do. They 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 take the water and put it in a cup up to the the, the um, uh, governor of the feast, and he sips the water and he says, "This is the best wine I have ever drunk." 
Uh, either that was really good wine or the governor was so drunk he couldn't tell the difference. All right, uh, But uh, no, no doubt Jesus turned the water into wine. And here you had uh, Jesus performing his first miracle. Um, now, after many of the miracles that Jesus performed, he would preach a sermon. Please hear what I'm saying to me uh, tonight here. He would preach a sermon after he performed the miracle to drive home a point. Alright? Uh, let me give you a couple examples. In John 5, we find the healing of the lame man by the pool of Bethesda. He did that on the Sabbath day. And then he would turn around and he would preach a sermon about how he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And then in John 6, we find him feeding the 5,000 only to turn around and preach a sermon about how that he was the bread of life. And so Jesus would perform a miracle and then preach a sermon on the back end and make the application. Now, when Jesus turned the water into wine, he did not preach a sermon. But if he had, here's what he may have said. And this is exactly what the Scriptures do tell us. Letter A, the silent sermon. Notice, a message about cleansing. A message about cleansing. Look at John chapter 2, look at verse 6. I'm going to show you some things here tonight out of the Bible. I think maybe give you some really good insights. Look at verse 6. And there, there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the, look here, purifying of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. So, these water pots, what were their purpose? These water pots were only meant to wash your hands or maybe wash the dirt off of your feet. As a traveler, these water pots were meant for the purpose of cleaning the outside, but God's going to take, Jesus is going to take water meant for cleansing the outside, and He's going to give them a cleansing on the inside. He's going to turn it into a beverage for the inside. Isaiah chapter 54. Can you turn over there with me? Isaiah 54. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, God had a special message for His people. Um, they were like a wife. Israelites were like a wife who had abandoned their husband. And as a result, were left empty on the inside. They, they were broken on the inside. Corporately as a nation. Look at Isaiah 54. Look at verse 5. For thy maker is thine husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall be called. And so we see that uh, the maker, their maker, is uh, their husband. Look at Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 32. I'm building up a truth here, so hang in here with me. Jeremiah 31 and look at verse 32. Isaiah, Jeremiah. Quickly, quickly turn over there. Jeremiah 31, look at verse 32. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, and the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. So here we get the picture of Israel being the bride of God in the Old Testament. The Old Testament bride. And here we have Israel... Playing the harlot. They're playing the harlot. They're running into sin. You know what the story of Hosea is, right? God says to Hosea, I want you to go and I want you to marry a harlot. A woman who sleeps around. 
And I want you to make her your wife and I want you to love her. And so he does. And then this woman who is a prostitute starts running around on him and he has to kick her out of the house for her horrible behavior in front of their children. And she lands into debauchery and then lands into brokenness and eventually lands into slavery. And uh, this is a picture of Israel cheating on their spouse, Jehovah. And you know where we find Gomer in the, the end of the story? We find her enslaved and broken and empty on the inside. And you know what? Water does not fix. Water that cleanses the outside does not fix the brokenness on the inside. Now, there were six water basins for the purpose of cleansing the outside of the body, but there was no wine left to bring joy to the inside of the body. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can give us the inward cleansing we find, uh, what we need to find true joy. James chapter 4, we find the first three verses of James 4, from whence comes wars and fightings among you. Come they not hence even of the uh, lust which ward your temple. You desire to have and you have not, because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your own lust. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, Know you not that friendship with the world is enmity with Christ? Down in verse 7, we find the solution, or rather in verse 6, we find the solution, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, He will flee from you. Draw nigh unto God, and He will draw nigh unto you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded." Double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. James would also tell us in James chapter 1. Listen up tonight. Uh, many of us, we are really good at making the outside clean with those water pots while the inside is empty and broken. And uh, listen, God wants you to give Him your heart. He needs you to have a cleansing, not just of the hands of the outward, but on the inside as well. So what was this sermon, this silent sermon? It was a message about cleansing, let's look at an even more applicable sermon out of this, uh, a message out of this sermon. We see letter B, a message about cooperation. A message about cooperation. Look at me at John 2, and look at verse 7 and 8. Jesus saith unto them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. I just have to tell you, if this man who's never performed a miracle, who to you is a stranger, says to you, take that water to the governor and give it to him, you know what, I'm going to look at him and say, you're crazy. He ain't that drunk. You're crazy. You know what, for this miracle to work, Notice, they first had to go get the water. And then they had to obey him and take the water to the governor. Do you know that as long as the water was in the pot, it was water. It did not become wine until it had been drawn out of the pot and taken to the master. The miracle happened only because they obeyed. You see the cooperation that had to take place for this miracle to happen? They had to obey, and then the miracle was seen. 
You and I are called to partner with Christ to do His work. There is a human element to the work of God. We looked at Luke 6 this morning. We saw verse 38. Given it shall be given and you, pressed down, shaking together, running over, uh, uh, running over, shall men give into your bosom. How do men have to give into your bosom? Because God gives to men and lays it on their heart to give to you. There is a human element to the work of God. God works through us to do great work. Think about the story of the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 5. What happened? A little boy gave up his lunch of five loaves and two fishes to Jesus and Jesus said, the disciples make the men sit down and they put them into uh, groups and 5,000 men plus the women and the children are seated and what happens Jesus takes and breaks the bread and fishes and gives it to his disciples what if the disciples said if this doesn't work we're going to look foolish I'm not doing this I'm not I'm not I'm not passing that out I'm not going to do that you understand, Jesus did the miracle, but it took a little boy giving up his lunch, and it took the disciples willing to distribute to make the miracle happen. How about in John, let's see here, i got the chapter down here. John chapter number uh, 6. Jesus uh, heals a man who's born blind. What's he do? He makes clay out of his spit, and he puts it on the eyes of the man, and he says to the man, wash your eyes, and you can see. What if the man had said, I am not going to do that. Forget about it. If he's from New York, forget about it, right? Um, Forget about it. And no, he had to wash in in order to be able to see. Uh, How about in John chapter 11 where Lazarus is in in the ground and Jesus says, roll the stone away. And you know what? Had they not rolled the stone away, uh, Jesus would have not performed, He could have done it, but He would not have performed the miracle. You understand that in the work of God, it is not just enough for us to pray and sit back on our hands and wait for God to do everything. You must get up and get in the work so God can do great things through you. Oh, this is a message about cooperation. I wonder how many miracles are left undone in our lives because we refuse to cooperate with God's great plan. You know why many people would have not taken the water to the governor of the feast? Because they don't believe in the one giving the order. And when you and I are disobedient to the Word of God, we miss out on seeing the great and mighty works of God take place in our lives. We miss out on seeing some marvelous and spectacular things. And it isn't that God can't. Please hear this next sentence. It isn't that God can't. It's that God won't because you won't. We limit God's power through our obstinance and disobedience. What is this story about Jesus turning the water into the wine? What is this a sermon of? Where's the silent sermon in this story? And by the way, real quick here, I mentioned I'm not going to get into the uh, uh, wine being alcoholic or not. Here's why I'm not even going to go there. I have an opinion. Of course I have an opinion on that. I'm not going to go there because that is where everybody takes this, this story. And as a result of that being the main talking point, all the rest of what I'm talking about tonight is largely ignored and missed. 
We don't even see the truths buried in the chapter because we're worried about, is this an excuse for me to drink alcohol or not? Oh, there's so much more here than that. God wants us to, to partner with Him to do a mighty work. I remember a handful of years ago, Pastor Brown telling a story. And I don't remember every detail of the story. Some of you probably here know the story better than I do. But I sat there next to my wife as he told the story from this pulpit and was just amazed. He shared about uh, a person who was very sick in the hospital. I believe they were even wheelchair bound. And they asked Pastor Brown, early in his pastorate, would you pray over my loved one that God would heal them? And he said he put his hands on their head and he prayed that God would give them their strength back and give them their health back. I believe the person had some sort of permanent injury or illness. And just a short time later, that later that person was healed. Amen. You know, it wasn't Pastor Brown who performed a miracle. It was God who performed a miracle. But Pastor Brown was the one that laid hands on and prayed over. And God partnered with Pastor Brown to perform an incredible miracle. You say, Pastor Lejeune, do you believe in miracle workers? I believe in a God who works miracles. That's what I believe in. You say, does God still do miracles today? Oh, all the time God does miracles. But I don't believe God is going to let one man steal the honor and glory from him by performing miracle after miracle after miracle. God is the one that receives the honor and glory. Listen, I think we need to be less focused on who gets the credit and more focused on doing the work of God and watching Him do some incredible things. A message about cooperation. I just want to say this before I move on to letter C in the end of the sermon. I think sometimes Christians are far too busy running from A to B to C to D in their day-to-day. I know I'm guilty of this sometimes, and I'm a pastor. And I, I, I am paid by you to do ministry work. I'm paid to read my Bible and pray and visit hospitals and encourage the downtrodden and counsel hurting people. And even this can happen to me, and so I know it can happen to you. We get so busy running through a schedule and a routine we oftentimes forget to even see where God is working in our day-to-day life. We miss it. We miss it. God is bringing someone along our path and needs a word of encouragement to just make it a little bit further. We're so self-absorbed we don't even see it. God wants to co-labor with us. He wants wants, uh, the cooperation with heaven, but we're so single-track mind and shallow that we miss out on a, a miracle. Amen. This is a message about cleansing. This is a message about cooperation. See, this is a message about contentment. John chapter 2. Look at me at verse number 9. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, But the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. 
This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. If Jesus had actually preached a sermon after he performed this miracle, he may have said something like this. You listening? He may have said, the world's joy always runs out and cannot be regained, but the joy that I give is ever new and ever satisfying. Wine in the Bible was always a symbol of joy and celebration. Joy and celebration. Psalm 104 verse 15 says, "In wine that maketh glad the heart of man, and oil to make his face to shine, and bread which strengtheneth man's heart. So wine that maketh glad the heart of man. The world has a lot of things that bring happiness. But at the end of the day, you know what they leave you with? Emptiness. They leave you empty. They leave you alone. They leave you in distress. It leaves you broken. You know, but Jesus, when you drink of His wine, what you find is joy that just gets better and better and better and better. And you know what? You learn to be content with what God gives you for that season of life. Discontentment is born from a place of not trusting God's plan for my life. I'm not content. I want this. I want that. I don't like this situation. I don't like the way this person is treating me. Contentment says, I may not be comfortable where I am, but I know God has a plan and I'm going to trust His plan for my life. And you know, when we do that and we live with the wine of the Lord in our heart, what we find is joy and peace and contentment. The Lord wants to take that which you use to purify the outside and He wants to cleanse the inside. The Lord wants your cooperation to make it happen. And when you walk with the Lord and you drink of what He has to offer, what you'll find is a heart of contentment. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this evening. Lord, I pray You'd help us tonight to take these applications from this story, this first miracle. Your glory was beginning to be revealed as was laid out in John 1.14. Lord, uh, you, uh, you, you did a great work here and saved this couple from public embarrassment and maybe even a fine, but Lord, more importantly, you left for us some great applications. May we partner with you and do our part to see the work of heaven move forward. May we have a heart that's cleansed and right and pure before you. And Lord, may we live with your joy and contentment knowing that the best is still yet to come. Help us, Lord, tonight. In Jesus' name we pray.